Well, today we go back to the book of 1 Timothy. So if you have a Bible, open up to 1 Timothy. It's going to be after 1 and 2 Thessalonians. It is the first in what is called the pastoral epistles. We've been away from 1 Timothy for about two months as we've explored Christ and his preeminence from different passages. Now, our general pattern as a church is to preach what's called expositionally. That's through books of the Bible or sections of books of the Bible. In a real and practical sense, that's why that you, what you do is you just preach the next passage. And sometimes that means that you, on Mother's Day, preach the classic of all classic texts on Mother's Day, deacons. Let me remind you where we've been. Now, the purpose of this book is it, it's, it's stated unambiguously by the, by the author in black and white in 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 14 and 15. If you can look down at your Bible, you can see it. I am writing these things, this is Paul, to you, to Timothy, so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave. Here's the phrase to notice. The, in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. So we can think of this letter as kind of a how-to manual for building and maintaining a local church. This matters because every faithful gospel-preaching local church is, can be called, the household of God. Just so you know, no human institution on the planet can be referenced as the household of God. No government, no university, no seminary, no law court, however supreme, no city, no state, no country could ever be labeled the household of God. But the local church, the local church is called here in Scripture the household of God. So it, great, it matters greatly how we conduct ourselves together. When Paul speaks of the church, the household of God, he's not just speaking of the universal church, by meaning all Christians for all times and all places, but he's speaking of local churches, particular churches, regardless of how small, fledgling, or insignificant they may seem, local churches dotted around the globe can be called the very household of God, and we at Sinner Church are one of those. So, just to reset, to remember and recall where we have been, and if you haven't been here so that you can know what we've seen so far in 1 Timothy chapter 3. We were, we, before this, we noticed, we were, we were told that we should be on guard from false teachers. The household of God is constantly under attack from false teachers, especially from within, and we need to be careful. We were told to, to ensure that the perp, we understood that the purpose of the Old Testament law was to convict of sin and sh convict people of sin and show their need for the Savior. We saw later in chapter 1, that we're called to hold forth the message of Jesus, the one who came into the world to save sinners, by which there is no other way to be saved. We are called in chapter 2 to be vigilant in prayer for all people, even national leaders, and to continually call on the Lord to save unbelievers in our lives because His desire is that people would be saved. We saw at the end of chapter 2 that we're called to have qualified men preach and teach the truth of Scripture. And we saw at the beginning of chapter 3 that the church, the household of God, is to be led by servant leaders called elders who will one day give an account before God. And today, our focus shifts from elders to servants in the church. Elders are called to lead. They're called to 
be given to prayer and the ministry of the Word to serve the saints of God. And today we shift and we see how deacons are called to be servants who serve in the church in the very, as, as serving the very household of God. The household of God, then, must be served by servants together serving Jesus. That's the simple, big, main idea. This is the way the Lord works in His household. This is the way through deacons, through servants, through His people serving one another. This is the way that, that Jesus' hands and feet are manifested here in this world. So I'm going to show you where I got all that from. I'm going to read beginning in 1 Timothy chapter 3. I'm going to go from verse 8 down to verse 15. So if you have a Bible, follow along as I read. And the version I'm reading from is the English Standard Version. God's Word says, Deacons, likewise, must be dignified, not double-tongued, not addicted to much wine, not greedy for dishonest gain. They must hold the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. And let them also be tested first, then let them serve as deacons if they prove themselves blameless. Their wives, likewise, must be dignified, not slanderers, but sober-minded, faithful in all things. Let deacons each be the husband of one wife, managing their children and their own households well. For those who serve well as deacons gain a good standing for themselves and also great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. I hope to come to you soon, but I am writing these things to you so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. Let's pray. Lord, as we quiet our hearts here for just a moment, I pray that you would meet us today as we open your word, as we read from your word, and as we hear preaching from your word. Lord, I pray that you would move in power despite my limit, many limitations and vulnerabilities. And I ask that you would build your church this morning through the preaching of your word. Lord, you building your church is what you're committed to, and I pray that in some small measure and fashion that this sermon, this exposition from 1 Timothy chapter 3 would aid in that process. So Lord Jesus, be with us. Send your spirit to be with us in power this morning so that we don't just learn, but we become, we have an experience with you, Lord. And in your name we pray. Amen. The household of God must be served by servants together serving the Lord. That's the main idea. Now you'll notice I only use the word deacon a couple times. Here's why. First, well, let's first ask two questions of our text. First, what is a deacon? That's the question. Indeed. And as I've already alluded to, this word rendered deacon usually in the New Testament means servant, um, literally. In fact, deacon is a word that is actually not a translation. It's what's called a transliteration. Now, let me see if I can explain. A translation is when you render one word from one language to another. In Spanish, gato means cat. Perro means dog. Iglesia means church. Dios means God. Those are translations, right? That's straightforward. That's a straightforward translation from English to Spanish, Spanish to English. But what is transliteration? This is when you render a word from one alphabet to another. Now, as you all know, not all languages use the same alphabet as ours. 
Hebrew in the Old Testament, Greek in the New Testament use different alphabets. I'll show you what I mean. Here is a word that you look at and you think, what is that? Um, that is a Hebrew word, and it's actually a word that you know. It just doesn't look like you know it. There it is. You know that word. It means, and you know, I don't even need to tell you the translation because it means God with who? Exactly. That is translated in Isaiah 7 and 9 and other places as Emmanuel. And so we know that that means God with us. Now, it's similar with the word that is translated or rendered with deacon. Sometimes the translators from Greek to English do the same thing, and here's that word deacon. So it's diakonos there, but it's transliterated into deacon. So technically, this word is not translated, but it's transliterated. Now here's the interesting thing, and you're thinking, what's all this Greek and Hebrew lesson for? I was coming here to have a happy Mother's Day message. Well, happy Mother's Day. I'm giving you just a brief understanding of what's happening here, but what goes on in sometimes in, in the translations, what we see here is that sometimes the translators decide to just transliterate it. Now, most of the time, this word shows up that is translated deacon in 1 Timothy chapter 3. Most of the time it shows up, it's translated servant. Servant. Nearly 30 times in the New Testament, and almost every time except in 1 Timothy 3 and Philippians 1, it's translated servant. Let me show you some examples of this same word translated servant in Mark chapter... Like, I'll give you a few examples. Mark, Mark 9. And he, this is Jesus, sat down and called the twelve. And they said to him, if anyone would be first, he must be last of all and diakonos of all, or servant of all. Mark 10.43. But it shall not be so among you, but whoever would be great amongst you must be your diakonos, or your servant. John 2, the famous wedding, um, water into wine at, um, at Cana, at that wedding. His mother, Mary, said to the servants, the, the diakonos, do whatever he tells you. John 12, Jesus says, if anyone serves me, he must follow me, and where I am, there will my diakonos, my servant, be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. Romans 13, speaking of the government, for he is, this is the government, God's diakonos, or servant, for your good. But if you do wrong, he, or be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain. For he is the servant of God, diakonos, the avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. One more example, 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 5. What then is Apollos? What is Paul? Servants, or diakonos, through whom you'd believed, as the Lord assigned to each. Now, why do I go through all of this? Now, you don't need to know Greek. You don't need to know Hebrew to be able to understand what the Bible has to say. But there are times when it's helpful to understand what's translated and what's not. So the reason I go through all of this is because many of us, because we're Americans, have a wrong, view, wrong idea of what a deacon is. Why is that? Because if you've grown up going to church especially in the Baptist tradition and others, I would venture to say that when you grew up, there was a board of deacons that were essentially elders. They were the power brokers. They were the de facto elders. They served as the real authority in their church. Now, that idea is foreign to the Scriptures because the word deacon means servant. 
Deacons are servants. Servants are deacons. So when we see 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 8, deacons, we're not to think just a little bit below elders in leadership. No, we're to think servants. Servants, because that word, we want to understand what that word means. And here's what that word means. It means servants. Servants, likewise, must be dignified. Now, the next logical question is this. Must the deacon be an ordained office? Must the deacon be an ordained office? Now, if you've, come, if you've been a member for a long time here, or even a short time, you might wonder why we've never had a service where we've laid hands on a group of people and set them aside as deacons. Now, the reason ordain an office is, what I'm saying here is that this is, when we say office or ordination, we're talking about something that a, that, that a person occupies for the foreseeable future. For example, when an elder is ordained, he's not ordained to a temporary station, but one that he will occupy as long as he is able, Lord willing, at the same church. So that's when we, when we look to ordain elders, we're not going to ordain elders that are here for, you know, Lord willing, a couple years and just move on. We want to have shepherds who are here for years. Now, deacons or servants. The reason we haven't ordained deacons or servants is because it seems as if most of, many of their roles are temporary. And, you know, there are times when they may serve in one way, like, for example, on the financial review committee, on another way as small group leaders, if we installed someone as a deacon forever and ever, amen, it may, they, they, would, they might feel locked into this kind of thing. Uh, they might feel like this is who they have to be from now on. And you know what? The reality is the New Testament seems to give local churches freedom so that they can decide, hey, some churches we may ordain deacons, others may not. Even within our own denomination, some ordain deacons, don't, some don't. We haven't yet um, partly because we have deacons already. We have ministry leaders. We have lead servants. Those folks are already in place. We have a whole bevy of small group leaders. We have a whole bevy of Bible study leaders. We have a whole bevy of people who serve sacrificially and lead others in serving sacrificially. That's what a deacon is. And so the reasons we haven't ordained deacons, now this is a, these are secondary issues recognized, or even tertiary issues. There are churches that are going to ordain them, and I'm not going to throw rocks and say, oh my goodness, how could you do that? What I'm going to say is, that's wonderful. They understand the needs of their church and their community and their body, and they feel like this is what's best. For us, we have a whole bunch of deacons already, and they're already serving in these ways. And so Here's some of the reasons that we don't ordain deacons. First, many Americans think deacon is a church leadership office when it's not. Second, not once on any of Paul's missionary journeys does he install deacons in a particular church. He does, however, always install elders. In all the letters to the churches, the only time he references deacons is in Philippi. So, it seems clear that not every church in the early days had, a de had deacons. So the nature of the diaconate is often also permanent or, or temporary and not permanent. So, for example, let's say we had a need for, let's say we had the opportunity to serve a refugee community that was maybe, let's, that we want to help them get housing, we want to help them, we help them find a place to live, we want to help them eat, we want to help them get clothing and all the needs and necessities. Let's say we we set someone aside to be able to be our point person on that, that would be probably a temporary assignment. 
that they would be able to keep going, they would be able to hold on faithfully for a number of years maybe, but that may not be what they do forever. So that's why we don't ordain deacons to a specific role, because there are many different roles in which we have servants who serve. So just backing up, just so I'm clear, the nature of the diaconate or of servants is that they meet the practical needs of the church so that the elders can give themselves to prayer and the ministry of the word. Now, I know our church is a whole company of, church, of servants. Um, and so we, we, I'm grateful that as I read 1 Timothy chapter 3, verses 8 through 13 in particular, I see names and faces in my mind recognize that we have a, a strong and active diaconate as there are people who serve as small group leaders and have for years. There are people that serve on the financial review team and greeting team leaders and children's ministry coordinators and women's Bible study leaders and prayer leaders and team leads for the many different Rancho 3M projects. There are so many different and more other ways in which people serve in our church. And so the reason I'm highlighting this is not to say we don't have deacons. Actually, we do. We have a ton. We have a ton of deacons. But that word, I think, is better rendered servants. So we have a bunch of servants. And that's the way we're called to be. The household of God must be a people that is marked by service. It must be a people that is marked by people who serve and give their lives to serve one with another and to serve one another. So the household of God must be served by servants together serving Jesus. So what are some qualifications? Now we know what deacon is. What are some qualifications for these lead servants? You'll notice that the majority of what's going on here is a description from verse 8 all the way down to verse 13 on what a servant or a deacon is called to be. And you'll notice these qualifications are not for supercharged Christians. There's no mention here of being able to raise the dead, make bread from stones, walk on water, or have superior intelligence. Rather, what we see here is a list of basic Christian character traits. The Bible always, always values character above gifting. And so what we see here with these qualifications for servants and with the qualifications we saw two months ago for elders is what a man or woman is, what, what a man is when it comes to an eldership. Um, what a man is is much more important than his gifting. And with deacons, what a man or woman is is much more important than their giftings. So in fact, the main difference between the two lists we have in verses 1 through 7 and 8 through 13 is that the elders have a call for one gift. They must be able to teach. Servants are not, that, that's not on this list. So what are the qualifications for those who would serve and serve in a lead capacity? We can see this in verse 8. Look at verse 8. Deacons or servants, likewise, must be dignified, not double-tongued, nor addicted to much wine, not greedy for dishonest gain. In other words, they're to be faithful and trustworthy in all of their public and private dealings. They're not looking to take advantage of anyone. They're just looking to selflessly serve because, you know, when you get in the lives of people, it can be easy to take advantage of people and try to, try to get things from them servants, deacons, must be a people who look not to get, but look to give. What else? Verse 9. They must hold the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. 
This means that they must believe that the truth of the gospel is the only news that can save mankind because mankind is hopelessly mired in sin and will experience eternal death if not for the substitute if it wasn't for the substitutionary life death and resurrection of Jesus Christ and there is no other message by which sinners may be saved servants must hold this faith must believe this truth with a clear conscience that mu- that doesn't mean they don't have questions about anything in the Bible. It just means that they believe Jesus is who the Bible communicates him to be, and that he did what the Bible says, that he lived, died, rose again, ascended to the right hand of the Father on high, and will one day return for his bride. Verse 10, and let them be tested first, then let them serve as deacons if they prove themselves blameless. In other words, Deacons or leads, lead servants should be mature. We don't want to thrust people into leadership just because they're gifted. We want to ensure that their Christian character is proven and there is testing that goes along with this. Verse 11, their wives, likewise, must be dignified, not slanderers, but sober-minded, faithful in all things. Now, verse 11 could be translated women or wives, and it's a raging debate, but... Either way, it is clear that women are called and commissioned to serve others as well. And the the call and commission for any woman who serves like this is that she is to be dignified, not slanderers, sober-minded, and faithful. Essentially, just be a faithful, mature Christian woman. Women. Woman, sorry. i got to get that right. Um, And then verse 12. Back to the men. Let deacons each be the husband of one wife, managing their children and their households well. So back to the men. Their family and life should be in order. Not perfect, just faithful. Um, Because they must have a household that reflects the reality of the truth that they follow. And lastly, verse 13. For those who serve well as deacons or servants gain a good standing for themselves and also great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. A good standing meaning that they will be blessed by the Lord in themselves. And there's a blessing that happens when you serve other people expecting nothing in return. These these things, when you serve other people and you see the Lord work in people's lives, when you see people go through things that that is heart-wrenching and difficult and soul-crushing, yet, but you see them continually put their trust and faith and confidence in Christ, when you see that and when you serve these people, you recognize, man, there is something here that is real and this builds our faith. And so that's what's going on here in verse 13. When you serve, you act in concert with your Savior, who was the chief servant, the one who came not to be served, but to serve. And these qualifications, again, are not for the supercharged. They're for any one of us, and we should all aspire to these kind of qualifications, these kinds of character traits. That's what it is to be a deacon or a servant. So do we have deacons or servants? Yes. Are they currently ordained to continual service? No. There's many different roles our lead servants play. And I meant, as I mentioned, a few of them. That we, right now we don't ordain them. Maybe we will in the future, but we haven't yet. 
But here's the point. The household of God must be served by servants together serving Jesus. And you might think, what in the world does this even matter for? We need to go back where we started and recognize what the stakes are here. We're talking about how to conduct ourselves in the household of God. Because our gathering, our church, center church, we are members together both of one another and of the household of God. So the stakes are high. What we do here matters. We're not able just to freelance and just decide what we want to do, how we want to do, what our message is, how we, you know, how we inspire people. What we want to do is be a place that reflects the reality of the fact that we are a household. We, we are in the household of God. The church, the gathering, the congregation is, is the household of God. So we are in the household of God. Look at verse 15. There's another phrase I want to just draw your attention to. If I delay, you may, know, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the, tr- of the truth. Now the church, and this is a fascinating bit of reality here, the church in Ephesus was a small, fledgling little church. Maybe a few dozen people, maybe at the absolute most, 150. If we were to travel to the ancient city of Ephesus, this little church would not look like the center of spiritual life in that town. Why? Because in that town was the temple of Artemis. And it was the most impressive temple in the whole Roman world. It was a massive building bedecked with remarkable and striking artwork. It was so revered that the temple of Artemis was one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. And the centerpiece of this architectural extravaganza was a a statuesque representation of Artemis holding her hands out, effectively offering life and sustenance and protection and fertility. But yet, what the statue offered, she could not deliver. She was dead. She was hollow, she was just a piece of wood, had hollow dead eyes, unlike the church of the living God, unlike the living God. Even though the saints numbered only in the dozens, their ad, the address of God in that city was with them in their midst. The living God in that town was amongst those people. That town was amongst the, those people there in Ephesus, that little church. They were the church of the living God. Now, people didn't travel to the little church in Ephesus to marvel at its grandeur like they did the temple of Artemis, but that church was the church of the living God in that city. The gathering of those saints in Ephesus did not seem impressive compared to all the pomp and circumstance of the temple of Artemis, but the church in that town was the church of the living God in that city. For us, our situation is different. In that time and in that place, there was only one faithful church in all of Ephesus. Praise the Lord, there are many in our city and many in our country. But we are still outnumbered. And many of us are apt to think that the local church or a particular church is nice but maybe not so necessary. It's helpful to recognize here that what Paul calls this church applies to us as well, the household of God. 
and the gathering, that's what church means, the gathering of the living God. And this is true for every faithful church, whether they cluster under a tree this morning because they have no building, or whether they're huddled in a basement to hide from authorities, or whether they're bundled up in an urban high-rise, or whether, like us, we're arrayed here at 1280 North Cooper Road. Any faithful church is the household of God, is the gathering of the living God. To put a finer point on it, if Center Church is your church, this is the household of God for you. In your life, the place that you primarily meet God is with the saints together. The living God is most active when His people are gathered together to pray and sing and talk and hear preaching and hope together and believe together and anticipate the future together. The living God is in our midst in a way that simply doesn't happen anywhere else when we gather together. We are, in a very real sense, the household of God together. Members of the church of the living God. Though there are many churches throughout the world, there are lots of places where there are no faithful churches. That's part of the reason we plant churches both in the United States and around the world, and we look to pray and figure out how we can get to places where there aren't any faithful churches. See, it's easy for us to forget what sets us off as different in the United States. Fundamentally, what makes us different is that we're members of the household of God. Fundamentally, what makes us different is not our education or our race or our socioeconomic status. It's not how we voted or our citizenship or our politics or our opinions or our skin color or our language. But what makes us different is our God. We belong to the living God. And we are members of His household together. And together we're called a church of the living God. See, the reason this matters is when we start talking about servants, what we want to be is a household of God. We want to be a people who, who resemble our Lord. We want to be a people who resemble our Lord in the way that we serve each other. We want to be a people who resemble our Lord as we think His thoughts after Him knowing the Bible and having the Bible preached. And you'll notice the Bible is sung every week and there are verses up on the screens that tell us where, they come, where those songs come from in Scripture. That's not by accident. It's to help us understand that if we're going to be called members of the household of God, we must re resemble this God. And another way we resemble this God is by the way we live. We want to be servants who live in a way that shows, honors, and glorifies our Lord. Our world will not see Jesus with their physical eyes until he returns. But the closest they, but they still can see Jesus as they see the way you and I and we together serve one another. Because when we serve one another sacrificially, continually, considering others as more important, overlooking the sins of others and loving just the same as we freely forgive and as we continue to serve, serve, serve. As we do this, what we do is we show and broadcast Jesus. It's not just that we say Jesus has changed our lives, we show it as well. 
The household of God must be served by servants together, serving their God. Otherwise, it's not a household. So that's what we're called to do. That's what we're called to be. And as we live together in this way, as those called to be lead servants serve, and as those who are called to serve serve, what we see is that we recognize that this becomes and is the household of God and reflects something of the reality that God is real and that he actually does change lives. And that's the truth. See, we live together as a church, as his household. And so may we continually look to be a people who reflect this reality. Whether, whether you are a lead servant or a deacon, whether you serve and love and pray and, and have no formal official role, whether you're an elder, whether it's your job to preach or whatever, may we be a people who reflect the truth of this Jesus in all that we do and everything we are because this is the household of God. And together, together we serve the living God. Let's pray. Lord, I ask that you would... I pray for faithful churches around the globe. Lord, I could never number them. I could never call them out all by name, Lord, but that's, no, that's nothing you're limited by. Lord, you call each star out by name, and we can't even number the stars. And you care for the churches, your churches, your different households. You care for them much more than we could ever imagine. And so, Lord, you know them each by name. You know their strengths and weaknesses. You know, Lord, who they are. You know where they're going. And so, Lord, I pray that you would awaken your church in these days. I pray that you would awaken your church to the realities of the truth of the gospel. I pray, Lord, that you would help us to be a people who hold on ever stronger to you. I pray this for all the churches around the globe. I also pray this for us, Lord. I pray that we would continue to work out our salvation together as we serve one another. And Lord, I ask that you would that, that you would just encourage those who are serving as lead servants, like those folks that serve as small group leaders or prayer leaders or women's Bible study leaders, those who serve as children's ministry coordinators or financial review team members. And there's a whole host of other folks that serve in these ways, Lord. I pray that you would help them all and help us all to recognize that that's not just getting work done. That not, that's not just doing a job because it has to be done, but that's serving the living God. And so, Lord, I pray that we would be a people who see that we serve this living God continually, that we serve this living God with all that we are. And so, Lord, as we serve one another, Lord, I pray that you would help us to be a people that shows the reality of this love out for any and all to see. I pray, Lord, that we would be more and more a lighthouse to our community the truth of the gospel would shine forth from us. And I pray that people, when they come and interact with us and, and, and hear about our Lord and recognize our Savior, I pray that they would be a people who say, God is in their midst. And I can see it by what they say and how they live. And so, Lord, may that be the truth of us. And thank you for all the different folks that serve in the ways that they do in our church. And I just ask that you would bless them in their efforts, Lord. And in your name we pray. Amen.